You're listening to an IOE podcast from the UCL Institute of Education. Powered by UCL Minds. This is Research for the Real World. Conversations with researchers and the paths they've taken to help shape our everyday lives. Hello, I'm Carrie Wong. I'm an assistant professor here at the IOE. On this episode, I'm delighted to be talking with Dr. Rebecca O'Connell. Rebecca is reader in the sociology of food and families at the Thomas Coram Research Unit at the IOE. Her research focuses on food practices among children and families in the UK and internationally. Her research has been funded by the European Research Council, Economic and Social Research Council, Food Standards Agency, Public Health England, and Higher Education Innovation Fund. Rebecca aims to inform policy through her research and is keen to collaborate with organizations concerned with the effects of social policies on children's and families' food and lives. Rebecca's recent ERC-funded project, Families and Food in Hard Times, is a mixed methods international comparative case study to understand the causes and consequences of food poverty and their relationship to social structures and public policies in three European countries. We're going to chat with Rebecca today about what food poverty means, how she researches it, and what impact the COVID-19 pandemic has had on both. Rebecca, hello. Welcome to the podcast. Hi. Hi. Thank you for having me. Rebecca, just to start off our chat, I'm curious to know whether you always knew you wanted to be in education. Oh, my goodness. No, I don't think I did. <laughs> to be honest, I sort of <laughs> found myself here. Initially, I mean, I, was, I, I did an undergraduate degree in social anthropology. Mm-hmm. I went on to do a, a master's in television documentary. And then I found myself with two small children and thinking that a career in documentary television was going to be pretty difficult to kind of navigate (laughs) in those circumstances. And at the time, my children were going to a childminder and I became really interested in childminding, family daycare, and just had this idea that perhaps I might apply for a PhD to to study family daycare. And I, I was really lucky. I approached a professor at UCL in the Department of Social Anthropology who agreed to support me and very fortunately wrote a proposal and was funded by the ESRC to do what's called a one plus three so um, another master's in social research and then a a three-year PhD and that's what I ended up doing (laughs) so that's how it kind of started really but no initially I I thought I wanted to work in in television documentary. That's fantastic amazing Can you tell us then a little bit about what is food poverty and why it matters, as this is a central theme in in your research? Well, the way I come at this topic is as a social anthropologist and a sociologist. So when I start thinking about food, I I think about it as being kind of multifaceted, multidimensional. So on the one hand, food Mm -hmm. is, you know, well, it's fundamental, isn't it? It's fundamental to life. And it's fundamentally material in the sense that it, you know, provides the nutrients that we need for growth, for healthy growth. It plays a part in health inequalities and so forth. But it's also material in the sense that it's a resource that comes into the family or the household and needs to be managed. But not only is it material, it's also essentially symbolic. So 
food and eating, you know, mediate our relationships with other people. They mediate our sense of self, our sense of self-worth. They're a way in which we we control relationships. So it's a, food is a way in which governments can control populations or within the family that parents can control children, for example, you know, by promising them that they can have a favourite food if they eat something they don't like. And children also use food to control relationships, to resist parental control, spitting food out, refusing to eat things. So food really mediates our social relationships and it's really vital to them. So when I think about food poverty, I think of it in the sense that Peter Townsend talked about poverty. So this idea that being poor isn't only about being materially deprived, it's also about this kind of social dimension. So being excluded from the kinds of customary activities that people take for granted in the society to which you belong. So not being able to take part in those. And then as part of that, or as a consequence of that, being made to feel excluded or being excluded and being made to feel ashamed. So thinking about food poverty in those ways, we can think of it as being not only material, but symbolic, social and psychosocial as well. That's a really fascinating perspective. You've just, you know, proposed. I like never thought of food that way. <laughs> I mean, food plays <laughs> such a massive part in, in my culture and, mm. you know, social interactions. That's so true that food would mediate relationships and things like yeah. that as well. Yeah, yeah. I guess my next question is about your recent ERC funded project. The ERC, is, for those of you who don't know, it's a very prestigious grant and it involves lots of preparation and very few people get it. So, Rebecca, can you tell us a bit about how long you prepared for the grant and why you applied for the funding to do the research? When it came to the ERC grant, it was, I think it was in about 2012, I'd just been, you know, we were just seeing the effects of so-called austerity measures really starting to kick in in the UK and reports of, you know, families needing to use food banks, teachers having to feed hungry children and so forth. We've, you know, become quite familiar with those now. But at the time that was fairly new. But the research that was kind of coming out tended to be more statistical social science. So that treats kind of treats households as one unit and doesn't really look at what goes on within the household. And then the more qualitative research that existed tended to focus on mothers' experiences. And there's really good reasons for that. You know, it's mothers who are the managers of poverty, usually. But at Thomas Corwin Research Unit, we specialise in policy-relevant research about children and their families. And it just seemed really clear to me and to us that we needed to look at what children's experiences were in families where there wasn't enough food or money to go around. How did they experience living on a low income and being food poor? What were their contributions in families? How did they negotiate with parents and so forth? So really looking at some of these intra-household kind of processes that happen and we also wanted to understand the context a bit better and, and to compare the UK context with other countries that had 
that shared some some similarities but were also different in some ways. So the ERC, European Research Council grant, just seemed like it would give us the room and the time to be able to pursue some of these questions in a comparative research design. And for me, I mean, I was really lucky to be able to get it, really fortunate to be supported by, you know, colleagues at TCRU and at the IOE in getting access to that grant. It was quite amusing, really. I was pregnant at the time that we had to do the preparation and I had to go to Amsterdam to to take part in some training that was being offered because, you know, the interview for the European Research Council grants is quite scary. <laughs> so <laughs> so um, the IOE funded those of us who had got through to that stage to take part in this training, but I couldn't fly because I was, I was, you know, too pregnant at the time. So I had to get a train all the way to Amsterdam and do this training. I mean, it was, it was a crazy time. Yeah, we were really fortunate to be awarded it. It gave me the time as well to move into a slightly new research area, which has been great because, you know, poverty is a huge, a huge area to move into having not come from that background, having come from food, sociology of food and yeah, food studies more into poverty would have been a bit intimidating, I think, without having some time to kind of familiarise myself with the literature and so forth. That's really incredible. I mean, getting the grant obviously is is not easy, and it sounds like, it sounds like you know you going for the interview was also not an easy process as well. <laughs> we had we had we had a baby with us when we went for the interview, so by the time that the interview actually happened, we had a three I had a three week old baby, and um, she had to come. So, I it was actually it was a great day. My my colleague Julia Brannan came as my kind of chaperone and looked after the baby whilst I went up to do the interview. So we managed to kind of brainstorm on the train on the way there. And yeah, we were just really fortunate to, to get funded. You know, it's, you know, it is, there's a bit of luck involved, isn't there? It's a, it's a question of timing quite often. You know, we had a, a good idea, I think, and a solid design and the time was right. Yeah, that sounds incredible. And so, you know, you mentioned a little bit about giving voice to children, understanding their, what their experiences are in the family, home. And obviously, you know, conducting research across different countries is, is never easy. What were some of the problems that you faced and how did you address them? Yeah, so I think one of the biggest kind of challenges was recruitment, actually, was we expected recruitment to be tough. And it was. We wanted a very particular group of families because the research focused on families who were in low income, who were living in, we had two different study areas in each of the three countries, who were living in one of the study areas, who were on a low income, who had an 11 to 15 year old child, who were experiencing some dimension of food poverty, and who were willing to talk to us about their experiences. And for lots of reasons, you know, that made recruitment quite difficult we had expected it to take a long time. And in the UK and Norway, it took about two years to recruit the qualitative sample. So that was definitely a challenge. Yeah, I mean, it was made easier and possible by the fact that we had such a great team. So, and I, you know, could never stress enough the importance of having experienced 
mature, sensitive colleagues who were able to do, you know, that work mm-hmm. um, of recruitment and, and interviewing these the families. And yeah, so that, that was absolutely vital. But it was also an amazing experience working in this international team. So there was a team in the UK. We did the secondary analysis. So there was um, quantitative research as well, led by Charlie Owen at TCIU. So we did that at TCIU and then we had qualitative research happening in the UK, Portugal and Norway with teams in each of those countries. And it was, you know, a real privilege to be able to work with those people on on the project. And we kind of had meetings in each of the three countries at different points. And it was, yeah, I mean, it was it was amazing. It was definitely hard. Yeah, it sounds like it. And I guess before this project, had you worked with these teams before, you know, the cross-national research teams, or it was really this project that brought everyone together, and so you had to learn as you went along? Yeah, so it it was the project that brought everyone together. I was keen to work with, I think I'd met my colleague Celia, who's in Norway, through Julia Brannan, my colleague, and... I knew of the work of the team in Lisbon, but we didn't know each other personally. So, yeah, that's right. It was definitely a, le- a you know a learning experience. But we were so what the way that we carried out the kind of comparative approach that we took was that we used the same interview schedule essentially across the different countries. We developed case studies of children and of families according to a shared template. So the methods were kind of standardized and applied in different places. Um, And then we came together to discuss kind of example case studies and ask each other kind of probing questions about the context. And that really helped us to kind of draw out some more of the context, you know, some of the things that you might take for granted in researching, you know, at home. So it was really productive. But yeah, these things take time. Building the relationships takes time. Doing, you know, getting together, preparing for the meetings and and managing the team across the different countries. All of that stuff does take time. Mm -hmm. And so can you tell us a little bit about the, what you learned from the project in terms of, you know, the circumstances in which low-income families in the three different countries maybe are similar or different and how they got by and the impacts of low income on their food and eating practices? Big question. (laughs) Yeah, well, I think I suppose start with the similarities. Yeah. So, I mean, all of the families that, uh, almost all of the families, so there were 133 families in the qualitative research and slightly more children than that because we interviewed more than one child in some families and I should have said that with some of those families we also did repeat visits some of the children took photographs for us of food and eating in their everyday lives and then we went back to talk to them about their their pictures and some of the mothers gave us kind of tours of their kitchens their fridges their cupboards and talked to us about food and eating so we had a lot of data (laughs) to manage but yeah in terms of some of the the similarities it was nearly always mothers who were, you know, the, the food managers who were responsible for managing to feed their families on these kind of highly constrained budgets. Many of them engaged in similar kinds of strategies for doing that, uh, like shopping around, for example, or 
uh, you know, going to different shops where different items were cheaper or in many cases shopping every day, um, not only because they didn't have enough money to bulk buy, but also because that was one way of making sure that food didn't get eaten too quickly. So these kinds of strategies were similar but in terms of how they played out differently, it was quite interesting that, say, in Norway, shopping around often involved mothers travelling to Sweden. So travelling quite considerable distances in order to be able to bulk buy cheaper food that they could fill their freezers up with. Shopping around in the coastal area, we interviewed mothers um, in, in the UK, usually involved walking long distances on by foot if they couldn't afford the bus fare so different you know these things sort of played out slightly differently but always involved a lot of effort Uh, they were hard work another thing that was we found similarly across all the countries and we expected to find and did find was the strategy of what's being called maternal sacrifice so mothers going without enough to eat themselves in order to protect their children so skipping meals not eating for days at a time in some cases giving children what there was rather than having it themselves and it was interesting that you know sadly children were aware in some cases that their mothers were doing this you know they felt guilty about it so although they were protected from the kind of direct effects of poverty on their diets you know the indirect effects including this kind of sense of guilt and concern for their parents was definitely there but yeah we also found another similarity about a quarter of the children that we interviewed in all three countries despite mothers going without enough to eat also went hungry themselves at times so you know talked about especially in in the UK actually talked about having difficulty concentrating at school because they were hungry, for example. But the children also talked about, and again, this was across all of the countries, but especially in the UK, I guess, because the UK is so such a consumerised society, children talked often about being socially excluded from the kinds of activities that their friends would engage in just as a norm. So, you know, it's kind of a norm for children in that age group to maybe pop to a shop on the way home from school and get some chips or you know snacks together or to to meet you know in a cafe or a fast food restaurant and right that's not healthy (laughs) but it's definitely something that many children would take for granted and for the young people who couldn't do that that was that was difficult and they talked more about that in the UK than they did in the other two countries So that was a a slight difference there. In Portugal, the the young people talked a lot more about the importance of eating with family, actually, which I guess you might expect. But yeah, in the UK, they talked about inequality. They talked about feeling excluded. They talked about making excuses to their friends for why they couldn't go to places. And in all of the countries, two children talked about juggling very small amounts of money in order to enable them to do these things, to join in social activities. So they might be given a little bit of money to spend at school on a snack, or they might be given money for their bus fare, or they might get a couple of pound or a euro from their grandparents, you know, from time to time and saving this up in order to be able to join in some of these activities. 
but of course that requires a lot of planning you know it means that you can't be spontaneous whereas better off children could sort of spontaneously decide they were going to go to the cinema on the weekend that wasn't an option available to children living on the lowest incomes you know they this t- took a long time to plan to do something like that so they often made excuses about why they couldn't go yeah I can imagine it must you know it really highlights the importance of food in the relationship and social relationships that children have as they're growing up and developing especially in that age group of 11 to 15 yeah definitely definitely and like you know you only have to look at kind of food marketing to know that this this age group is really important you know in terms of establishing their identity and their autonomy this is you know food and eating is really a you know a major kind of medium for the expression of that identity and the expression of that autonomy I mean actually in it was interesting so we compared in each country two different study areas and in England it was an area of Finna London and a, an area of the coastal area in the southeast and one advantage the young people in London had over over those in in the other area was was that they had free bus transport Bus, bus travel so free bus travel meant that they could get around the young people living in the coastal area were really stuck and if they wanted to get anywhere they had to walk so it's a real worry that you know free bus travel for young people is kind of under threat at the moment because that was a massive you know it was really important to them in terms of maintaining their social networks being able to take part in kind of activities so yeah that's a that's a definitely a worry because at least they can still attend or go to go meet up with the friends, but maybe not share the <laughs> food um, experience. Yeah, well, they talked as well, though. I mean, young people like adults. I mean, it was interesting. They did talk a lot about sharing, sharing food with each other. But they were very mindful that they mustn't take too much, you know, the kind of norms of reciprocity. But they did talk about sharing food with each other, sharing chips or pitching in to buy a, buy something together and those kinds of things. So they did usually have their kind of ways of managing. So that was really interesting as well. One of the other, I think, things that surprised me and was was really interesting comparatively was around school meals. So we were interested not only in what young people were eating at home, but also at school. You know, they spend a lot of their lives in school. And it was interesting that in Portugal, nearly all of the young people were entitled to a free or subsidised school meal. Whereas in the UK, only around half of the, the young people were entitled because of the qualifying criteria here, which exclude many children whose families are on low incomes and I was surprised that in Norway there were no school meals I kind of thought as a Nordic country it would you know you think they're the best of everything for children (laughs) but it but they weren't and so we had the kind of reverse situation in Norway where summer holidays were actually cheaper for families than term times because they had to provide you know packed lunches during term time and food and bread especially are really expensive but yeah the young people in the UK spoke a lot about feeling excluded from school meals or um, not being able to afford them whereas in Portugal they had this kind of standardized three-course meal which was a great help to families and mothers talked about what a help it was as well when they were struggling to feed children at home 
Yeah, surprised to learn about these differences across countries as well. And I guess my next question relates a little bit to、uh, the UK findings that you were talking about. So, in what ways then can we, you know, based on your research findings on the UK and what children have told you, what does this mean in terms of UK policy? What are some things that perhaps you can recommend to the UK government on this front? Yeah. So. We were we were really lucky in being funded. We we really wanted to make sure that our findings were kind of helpful for organisations who are concerned with poverty and its effects on children and families. And so we collaborated with the Child Poverty Action Group in writing some recommendations. So in in publishing a book about about children's experiences. And in writing some recommendations for for governments, and one of the main things there was really that governments need to make sure. I mean, this is obvious, really, but governments need to make sure that wages and benefits are adequate for families to be able to feed themselves properly, and they're not at the moment in the UK. One of the problems here is that kind of food security or household food security has. Kind of been left as a gap for charities to fill, and that's a real problem. It's a real problem because most families who are in poverty and food poverty don't access that kind of support. There's limits on the number of times families can access it, and it's not dignified for families to have to go and essentially ask for leftover food. You know. We live in a consumer society where it's a norm for people to be able to choose what food to buy and eat. So it's much more important that government kind of takes responsibility and shares responsibility with parents for making sure that children can eat, rather than leaving it to charities to kind of fill fill that gap. So that was one of our one of our recommendations. Another thing I think that's really important to say is that. Parents feel a great deal of shame about being unable to feed their children. It's a basic expectation that we're able to house, feed, and clothe our children. But it should be the government that feels ashamed, as Maud Pembroke said over a hundred years ago. A, an underfed schoolchild is a disgrace and a danger to the to the state. And it's the government that should feel ashamed of hungry children in this country. And so, were there other, in terms of sharing your findings and disseminating your、uh, results, were there other activities or events that you had run to share more widely this important message that your research has been finding? Yeah. So we through the so through the collaboration with、um, the Child Poverty Action Group. So we. Got some money via UCL's Higher Education Innovation Fund to collaborate with them to produce the book and to have an event and do some social media activity around the findings, and it was fantastic. I think you know because we're our expertise is in research, and it's quite good to collaborate with people whose expertise is in campaigning <laughs> and learn from them. And I just found it was just a fantastic experience. So we launched the book at the House of Commons, and the event was hosted by Stephen Timms MP and、um, chaired by the journalist and author Polly Toynbee. 
and we invited people to that event and then on the back of that I was interviewed on Radio 4's Women's Hour, Women's Hour, so that's it, I've achieved my lifelong ambition, now I can give up, (laughs) which was brilliant and on ITV London News and the story was around the findings was published in quite a number of different national newspapers so it's you know it was definitely communicated widely and then actually we found out that Hammersmith and Fulham so another recommendation actually was around school meals and the need to make free school meals universally available for young people and Hammersmith and Fulham cited the findings in when they announced that they were going to pilot universal free school meals in two of their secondary schools so yeah it was it was just a great experience working with the child poverty action group on on the book and on the findings I, I really think that was a good strategy yeah it sounds like it got a lot of press and got a lot of interest from various groups And that's really what you want for research, isn't it? (laughs) I guess, you know, I've been reading the news a little bit, too, about uh, free school meals. And actually, you know, during the pandemic, that has the situation has obviously worsened with school lockdowns, families and children not being able to access free school meals. And I wondered a little bit what your thoughts are on the COVID situation and how that may impact your research area. Yeah, so our research was carried out in the wake of the last major global crisis, so the 2008 financial crisis, when so-called austerity measures were implemented by the coalition government in this country. And they essentially reversed the gains of the previous 10 years, increased the gap between rich and poor, and plunged families with children, particularly, into financial hardship. And and we saw the results of that in terms of rising levels of food insecurity and food bank use and so on. COVID-19 has exacerbated poverty, particularly among families with children, particularly among some black and minority ethnic groups. And it's also plunged families into poverty who were previously enjoying relatively comfortable lives. In terms of food and eating and what this means for food and eating, the Food Foundation has been tracking household food insecurity over the course of the pandemic. And we've seen large increases in the number of families who are food insecure. And we've also seen large increases in the number of families applying for free school meals. And we can see on the news and on social media, large increases in families turning to food banks at the same time that kind of supplies for food banks and charitable food is kind of dwindling. In the week leading up to the half term, there was a vote in the House of Commons about whether or not to carry on providing free school meals during the holidays right up until Easter next year. And this was voted against by a large number of Conservative MPs who were arguing that it's parents' responsibility to make sure that children can eat. And there's been a lot of discussion about what parents should do and about children, but many of these have largely failed to engage with children and with families themselves. And that's what we set out to do in our research. You know, there's been a lot of discussion about what parents should be doing and about what you know, about children's perspectives, but few of those discussions have engaged with children and families themselves. And that's what we set out to do. And not just us, but other campaigns like Bite Back 2030, Marcus Rashford, 
as people will know, has been heavily involved in the campaign to realise um, children's right to food. And children themselves recognise that it's parents' responsibility to make sure that they can eat. But they also recognise something that many ministers seem unable to see, that when parents can't meet this responsibility through no fault of their own, then it is the duty of the government and other organisations to step in to help. Marcus Rashford has been extremely brave and extremely vocal in speaking from his own experience as a child growing up in poverty, as a child of a working parent growing up in poverty. And more than half of children growing up in poverty in this country have at least one parent in paid work. Now, it just can't be right that families who are doing the right thing, who are going out to work, still can't afford to feed their children. So there are two things, you know, essentially that the government needs to do. We are in a crisis. They do need to feed children if parents can't feed themselves. They do need to extend free school meal entitlements to more children, including those who have working parents who are currently mostly exempt from free school meals. But they also need to address the causes of food poverty and insecurity. And those causes are essentially to do with parents not having enough money, which is what we found out in our research. We talked to parents as well as children. We learned about how much money they have coming in and how much money they have going out. And food is an elastic part of the budget. And when other things are, other essential kind of expenses uh, are met first, there is not enough money left for food and children go without. So I think I think that's something that's really important to remember. So food poverty, the kind of the concept of food poverty or food insecurity is really powerful. It really captures something. It captures people's imagination. People understand what is meant when people talk about children going hungry. But it's really important not to lose sight of the fact that food poverty is essentially an expression of poverty. You know, it's at the heart of poverty. And however you define poverty, lack of food is, is, is at its heart. And, and because it's part of poverty, that means that we have to under, address those underlying causes. And they are about a lack of collective resources. So collective resources include school meals and a lack of household resources, which means that through a combination of paid work and benefits, families need to be able to sustain themselves in dignified ways. You know, children shouldn't only be able to survive they should be able to flourish and they're quite clearly not able to at the moment mm -hmm, definitely and it sounds like if anything you probably need another research grant to <laughs> further pursue you know this area of research because it's so important i really think it's important that it can be higher education can be so competitive sometimes and i think you know i really believe in the importance of kind of collaboration and there is a lot of important and really good research work going on at the moment. And, and I've been lucky enough to be able to feed into and draw on some of that research already. I do think, you know, there, there, there will be there'll be room for, for more research when the time is right. But I think there is a lot of really great research happening already that we can, you know, usefully use. That's fantastic. Thank you, Rebecca. It's really been very interesting talking with you today. I learned so much. Thank you for joining us on the podcast and sharing your work and findings. We wish you well with your research. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. You can follow Rebecca on Twitter, r underscore O'Connell. 
and you can learn more about her research via the links in the podcast notes. Search for IOE Podcast from wherever you get your podcasts, and to find episodes from seasons one to five of Research for the Real World, as well as other IOE podcasts. We've had some fascinating guests on the podcast, a real variation in topics and expertise across the social sciences and education. And if it is a music interlude you're after, there's a Spotify playlist too, featuring songs chosen by our guests and the IOE podcast team. All of that is accessible via our UCL webpage. Just search Research for the Real World. I'm Carrie Wong. Goodbye. Thanks so much for downloading and listening to this IOE podcast from the UCL Institute of Education, University College London. 